welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast where we talk about how writing works, how writers work, and how the best writers risk being strange. And I want to just note uh, for everyone listening, we're kind of coming back uh, after a break with the podcast, and we're coming back to a lot of excitement. Uh, I've got a great guest today, Chadwick Ginther, but also um, I've got a Kickstarter launching. If you go to shewolf.ca, we'll be uh, launching a Kickstarter for a new comic series that I'm going to be doing with the uh, art by GMB Kamichik. Um, also, uh, you know, the eye collector, the comic that I'm doing with GMB Kamichik that is um, being published by heavy metal. That uh, comic is kicking around the world. Uh, we're going, to, we've got three issues in print out from heavy metal. If you catch me or Gregory at conventions, we'll have another three issues uh, in kind of early preview convention exclusive. So do, uh, you know, head to, you know, my website at strangerfiction.ca if you want to, you know, get in on these convention exclusives. I'll get, you know, I'll give you a special deal where you can actually get them outside of a convention. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, we'll be at a convention there for you. Um, but uh, the main news coming up today is that Chadwick Ginther is launching his new book. And it is the next book in the Thunder Road series, a collection of short fiction set in the same world as his uh, Thunder Road trilogy. Um, and I'm wondering, Chadwick, if you could just start with talking a little bit about um, that whole world and that story world, that trilogy. Sure. Um, so Thunder Road was my first published novel. Uh, it's uh, an urban fantasy uh, trilogy with uh, a Norse mythology uh, flavor happening on uh, the prairies in Canada, primarily in Manitoba, but uh, my protagonist is Albertan and that's, uh, that's where the series finale takes place. Um, yeah, it allowed me to, to play with a, a lot of the, the reading loves I have, which are superhero comics and uh, and myth and folklore, and uh, I was getting big into reading urban fantasy at the at that time. So it was uh, definitely a divergence in my in my early writing from the sword and sorcery and, and epic fantasy um, that I'd been trying to break in with. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know what else uh, you want to know. Uh, my the protagonist is a former Albertan oil worker named uh, Ted Callan, who gets tattooed with uh, some of the powers of the Norse gods and uh, um, he's got to deal with potentially um, another uh, another Ragnarok uh, end of the world scenario uh, by the finale of the trilogy. Sure so that's the trilogy you're just sort of talking about there and then this new book is set in the same uh, world with it does it feature some of the same characters as well uh Yes. Uh, so When the Sky Comes Looking for You is 10 short stories, uh, all set in the Thunder Road uh, world in various time periods. Uh, some take place before the first book. Bree Norns uh, is the narrator of one of the stories. Uh, Loki appears in several of the stories, though never as a narrator, because I feel like he knows too much of what's going on. So I don't want the, the reader to get his point of view. Uh, a lot of new characters as well, um, who, are, who uh, have never appeared in the series. And can you talk just a bit about your, your, so this is over, is it around 10 years, I think it was since you published yeah. the first book here. And so, you know, you've been in this world for a while. You've written other books uh, too, and other things as well, and set in other worlds. But um, one thing I'm always been kind of interested in is 
that turn or those changes, you know, where people kind of move in new directions in the course of their careers. And so uh, you mentioned, you know, you, you were kind of trying to break in with epic fantasy and then you made the shift to urban fantasy. Can you, um, do you remember why precisely you ended up making that shift? Like what was it that attracted you more uh, to urban fantasy? I feel I sort of discovered that my, you know, as I tried to write that my writing style felt like it suited urban fantasy uh, a little bit more. Um, and it, not to say that that all sword and sorcery or all epic fantasy has to, you know, be in a more formal tone, but uh, I, I think that, you know, when I'm not reading, when I'm not reading fantasy, I read a lot of mystery and crime fiction. So I feel like, I feel like that influence, um, I just absorbed a lot of a lot of uh, sort of modern tone. And I, I feel like that fit my writing better when I found authors like Tanya Huff and Jim Butcher and Patricia Briggs writing uh, fantasy in contemporary, you know, North America. Uh, it, it just sort of clicked that I think that that was what I wanted to do. It was happy circumstance that I found that around the same time as completing my first unpublished novel, which was, you know, a multi-POV uh, sword and sorcery book. Uh, so I just, I wanted to try something different. So the wanting to experiment and, and grow as a writer kind of came around the same time as I found a, a style of fiction I was really enjoying. And, you know, one thing I've liked about your work uh, over the years is that kind of tonal difference you know it's not super formal in places it's got a lot of jokes you know and humorous situations in it even as you've got all this you know epic action uh taking place as you say it's got a real superhero influence in in those regards in particular but even a bit of the wisecracking like you know superhero uh aspect as well which you know to me you know i had never thought about it before i started looking at your stuff but it does kind of lend itself more to the urban fantasy if, uh, for sure. Although Conan, you know, will get some good jokes off. Uh, it, it doesn't, you know, kind of vibe in that sort of sorcery quite so well as in the more um, uh, historically updated urban fantasy or whatever you what might, might call it. Um, so something, so, I, so, I, so I, what you're saying about the style makes a lot of sense uh, to me as well. Where Where's your attraction to these particular uh, myths and folklore come in because um i mean obviously a lot of authors are attracted to that uh kind of pre-made material in a sense but what i've seen you do a lot with it that's maybe a little you know different than what some people do with it is really kind of blending myth and folklore in, in various ways as opposed to just firmly sticking with one I'm just kind of curious to know a bit more about your uh, approach to the um, existing material. Uh, well, I mean, myth and, myth and folklore was some of the earliest reading that I did on my own that uh, that wasn't comic books. Um, we're we're probably of a, a similar vintage where we remember the Mighty Hercules cartoon. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, where and, and I, I saw that, and I you know I I did what any bookish kid would do. I went to the library and I checked out books on Greek myth. And so I read, you know, Delaire's book of Greek mythology, and I read all the other Greek myth books that I could find in, in my local library. 
And then right next to those were a bunch of books on Norse mythology. So I went to those and uh, those ones spoke to me more. I, I think it, some of it is, it's, it's weird because I was still a kid, but I like looking back on it, I, I feel like some of the fatality of the Norse mythology appealed to me. Like they all knew they were going to die and when, where, and how it was going to happen. And I'm like, well, that's like, that's just super fascinating. And I was, I was already a Dungeons and Dragons player. And so, uh, uh, you know, like I felt that they had cooler magic items. Like that was sort of what, like as a, as a mm -hmm. child, that was one of the things that really, you know, I really uh, sort of solidified them uh, for me as, as, as something I was interested in. But I also grew up with ghost stories and Bigfoot stories and, uh, you know, all that kind of like micro level folklore, not, you know, the not, not big, you know, world creating pantheons, but you know, that house is haunted and, and, uh, you know, that tree behind the courthouse, they used to hang people there. And it's like, of course they didn't, you know, that like there, it was a courthouse and, and maybe, you know, there was a gallows there in the early days of Manitoba, but, but they didn't hang people from that tree that the bike path veered around. Like that was just <laughs> topographical. But when you're a kid, you believe that, you know, like somebody hung a tire swing from that tree and you look up and you see the wear and the bark and you're like, yeah, somebody, you know, somebody somebody died here and and you know like i just kept absorbing all those little those little ghost stories uh, and so i think i liked i liked mixing the two um i think comics are one of the reasons why i took the tact i did with the norse mythology and and i assumed in my books that ragnarok had happened the end of the world had happened you know somewhere in the viking age we are the world that came, that came after because for me, um, then all of those stories had happened. How many times Thor has faced Ragnarok in Marvel Comics? It's several. I can, you know, I can think of at least two or three. And, you know, when whenever the, the story cycle started leading up towards that, I was like, oh, okay. And I knew the broad strokes of what was going to happen. And so I was always excited for after and when it was done and where they were going to take the character after that part of the story that I, you know, knew and had read various iterations of. So I think that that was a big influence on why I chose to, uh, I, I wanted Thunder Road to be additive uh, in a way. Um, and, and hopefully uh, I succeeded in that, uh, in that for people who, who love Norse myth. And you also, you mentioned comics, you have done some work, uh, like done some comics. I know I've got a comic here somewhere. Uh, if I recall correctly, it's also set in Thunder Road, is it not, uh, that comic? Uh, no, I did. Uh, I've done a couple. Uh, I did. Uh, my first comic work was with Donovan Yachuk's uh, Space Pig Hamadeus mm -hmm. uh, world. And uh, I just I pitched him a story uh, set on set on Mars uh, with kind of a, a, you know, man with no name ask robot. And I was very fortunate to have uh, uh, Winnipeg artist Nico Rudolph uh, illustrate that story. I think it looks phenomenal. Um, and then uh, I did a I did a book with Samantha Biko uh, that we co-created. We just did the just did the one issue to kind of feel out doing some comics. And uh, I have a, a kind of a pulp hero named Midnight Man. Uh, and those stories are set in uh, the graveyard mind world my uh, my other my other series and uh have been pretty fortunate with my my artists there um 
uh, Gregory Kamichuk uh, illustrated a short uh, story for uh, for Midnight Man, um, and uh, Justin Schaff, who worked on Canadian Corps uh, for September 17, um, another local uh, uh, comic publisher. Uh, he did a, a short Midnight Man short Midnight Man story, um, but Midnight Man started as as prose, um, uh, and then I you know, wanted to, wanted to try and, and do like a pulp, uh, pulp hero book. Uh, it's, it was a lot of fun, um, trying to figure out how to script a comic, uh, was never, never something, um, never something I had anticipated doing, but going to comics, uh, going to comic cons and, you know, selling my novels at my table, I got to meet a lot of comic artists and a lot of comic writers and, uh, uh definitely made me want to give it a try. Now, one thing um, I've always, you know, you probably don't know this, but I I credit you for, you know, a, a, some sort of a few major developments in my own career, uh, but it's not, you know, it's not maybe something you would kind of be aware of because, but, but for a while, you and I were taking the same bus to the university and you uh, were on the bus when I got on and you'd always be, you know, writing uh, presumably your Thunder Road stuff books and um you know so i'd get on and i'd see you you writing away there and i'd be just kind of like you know i'll leave chadwick alone let him write then i was you know thinking i i end up thinking a lot about like you know i bet you he's when you started putting these books out especially i was like i bet you he's wrote all these books or most of these books on this bus and i bet you that i you know could similarly look closely at my day and like where am i losing time in this day and maybe I could restructure how I do things a little bit and capture some of that time back for myself uh, and, you know, have these sorts of um, better ways to dip in and out of projects. Um, and so I, you know, spent quite a bit of time with that sort of inspiration of you writing on the, writing on the bus, um, kind of remapping sort of how I did a lot of different things at the time. Cause I was having a crazily hectic uh, period of my life where I wasn't getting a lot of downtime, but I found those sorts of moments and, you know, and, and, you know, particularly including, you know, my time on the bus and some of my little downtimes before and after classes and things. And, you know, when you really start to look at the day uh, as a writer in terms of what you're doing and where your time's going um, and you kind of start accounting for your time in a way, and figuring out you know, strategies to kind of reorganize your time, it can do uh, wonders and you can you know, really get um, time back in, in a manner of speaking. So I often you know, kind of credit you annoyingly with you know, kickstarting my, my whole like drive to become a bit more productive and efficient. Um, but I'm curious to know like uh, in your own sort of you know, writing trajectory, like, where did you um, kind of land or uh, what was sort of your strategy overall in terms of just kind of getting that time and that schedule together? Um, and could you talk a bit about sort of your working methods a bit? Because you're a guy who's been working consistently on, you know, not only sustained projects like novels, uh, but also on, you know, these sustained, you know, series uh, and really kind of being pretty consistent with them uh, as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, my whole trajectory as a writer came from stealing time, basically, out of my day uh, to, to try and build a routine to make it happen. Um, I uh, really started seriously pursuing writing when I, when I first started working um, at a bookstore because that made it feel possible. I mean, I saw people launching their books almost every night, and a lot of them were from Manitoba. A lot of them were from Winnipeg. Um, so that made it feel like a real thing I could do. And when I, you know, I, I think a lot of people start talking about writing before they start writing, you know, and so I started talking about how I wanted to write. And uh, one of my coworkers had published a couple of books. And uh, I don't know if you, uh, if you know Steve Banstead, um, but uh, he was a longtime uh, employee at the at McNally Robinson where, uh, where I was working at the time. And uh, he just asked me one day how much I'd written. And I hadn't written anything. I'd just been talking about the story that I wanted to write. And uh, he, you know, he was he never boorish about it, but he he just kind of every now and again he would, you know, he would ask me how the writing was going and ask how much writing I had done. And I realized if I didn't start writing, you know, I was never gonna have anything to say to him. And and so uh, I started carving time, and uh, I worked one evening a shift a week, so. I started at 2 p.m. and I'm like, well, that's lots of time in my day before work. That's almost a full like shift of work worth of writing I could do. And uh, it, 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 you know, became very small, but it, it snowballed. And towards the end of trying to finish that first short, short story for a deadline, I was writing, you know, on weekends too. And, you know, in, you know, finding all these spare moments um, with the, uh, when you saw me writing on the bus, that was kind of an, another perfect uh, storm of circumstances for me as I'd changed jobs and I had an arm injury where I couldn't type. So I had to handwrite things. And uh, I also had a deadline for the third book in the Thunder Road trilogy. So I, that was, you almost certainly saw me writing uh, Too Far Gone in 500 to 1000 word um, handwritten chunks in my notebook on the bus. And uh, that yeah. uh, I, I had to do it I, and I, I just I couldn't really type because I needed you know the, the motion I needed to uh, have in my arm I risked injuring it further if uh, you know, I used a computer for work so I'm like well that I have to not do that I have to do something different so I have to get started so I was handwriting it and uh, and then slowly transcribing it and I I wrote a hundred thousand words of stuff random scenes you know, 100 to 500 words or 500 to 1,000 words at a time. Uh, I, once I reached about 100,000 words, I figured I probably had enough for the book, so I started putting it in order. Um, as for the, the series, like the, the Thunder Road series came pretty easily. Like the first book was, uh, um, I think it's a B.L. Forrester quote um, where he likens writing to driving um, at night with, uh, with your headlights on. You can't see where you're going, but you can see far enough ahead to keep going. And that's how that book was for me. Uh, the second book arrived, you know, like wholly formed in my, in my head. And, I, and as soon as I finished my first draft for Thunder Road, I started chasing that second book. Uh, I was just transcribing it, you know, before I lost it basically. Um, and then I wanted to do something different while I tried to sell Thunder Road. So I tried some other series. I tried, you know, short stories set in different worlds. Um, uh, 
and then I had to come back to it to, to finish the series, which was was one of arguably one of the bigger challenges in my career. It was certainly I'd written a couple of, of other you know first books in series, but I'd never needed to follow it up. So you know I had to I had to figure out how to write a book too, and then I had to figure out how to close off a series. But uh, I think because I have continually through the years written short stories set in Thunder Road, it has kind of kept the world a little bit fresh in my head. Um, a lot of it is deadline driven too. Like if there's an open call for an anthology and I want to submit to it, but I don't think I've got time to build a whole new world. Well, I've got a novel's worth of world building, you know, a series worth of world building already done. Uh, if I write it in Thunder Road, uh, or if I, you know, base it with the mythology and world building of Graveyard Mind, there's a, the world building is done and I can focus on the character or I can focus on just the plot. And, you know, that will maybe allow me to turn around the story uh, and actually get some, get something done on deadline. I think a lot of writers don't realize or discount the importance of that momentum and that ability to just kind of keep going, even if you don't have it all figured out, as you say. Uh, and I think part of that becomes also tied into like working methods where, you know, people will get tripped up in this idea that it has to be a certain way, you know, like they'll get, they'll hurt their hand, like you say, and they'll be like, well, I can't type. So now what I got to wait. Uh, whereas, you know, you know, you're, you're, you're like, well, maybe I could use this pen, you know, uh, and, and th there's a lot of um, value I find in that, just the breaking it down in those simple, practical kind of manners and not necessarily having, getting wrapped up in your ideal of how it should be, you know, uh, or, you know, you should have three hours, you know, and your computer and tea and perfect quiet, you know what I mean? Like people get wrapped up in that idea a lot. Um, and as you say, what, what I think they'll end up doing is just talking about it. You know, I, uh, was actually thinking about, it's interesting. You mentioned that, you know, you were talking about writing for a while before you were writing because I, um, uh, you know, I, I was just thinking about this last night as my kid was brushing, you know, I was like, go brush your teeth. You know, I say to the kid, right. And, and then you start chattering about they're going to brush your teeth this way, or maybe they'll do this, then brush their teeth and maybe whatever. And they're just talking about brushing their teeth now. And at a certain point I was like, I was like, kid, I got like, like, stop talking about brushing your teeth and just brush your teeth. <laughs> you know, like you were talking about for five minutes. It only takes two minutes. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of writing is kind of like that in a weird way. Like the worst part of it in many ways is just getting over, you know, your idea about how it's supposed to be or, you know, endlessly talking about it instead of just doing it. And I've always kind of admired um, your ability to just kind of sit down and do it, you know, which I, I think is a rare thing, it seems, uh, not for writers, because obviously when, when writers start to do well or produce, like that's what they're ultimately doing. You know, at some point they have to do it. Um, but it is a thing that I think it, it's hard. It stops a lot of people from really getting going. And I wonder always like, what's that little thing that kind of turned you then? You, you talk about like that friend of yours who kind of was giving you the push. Was that the push or was there something else like in your sort of 
life or your mind where you just kind of went that went from like talking to doing it, you know, like, was there, was it just him or was it something else? Well, it was, it was, it was partly him um, because, you know, he, he was, he was encouraging, but insistent, you know, that, you know, if I was going to write, I should write. And, uh, but it was, it was a number of factors. I, I did most of my storytelling through role-playing games before that. Um, and I liked stories and it, it sort of, I think this is a, one of the reasons why I'm not, um, not a, serious outliner when I write is once I know what the story is, I'm kind of done with it. And so I, I kind of need to just sit down and write. If I think about it too long, if I talk about it too long and I figure out all of the story beats ahead of time, for myself, I don't necessarily need to write it anymore. Uh, it's, it's more of a, a discovering act. Um, some of it was just wanting to see if I could do it, you know, like, actually sitting down and writing a short story and submitting it for publication and seeing what happened. And then could I, could I sustain that? It took me a couple of months to write a 5,000 word short story. Um, and that was, you know, before I even started trying to polish it. And so then it was like, well, could I, could I sustain that over the long run? Like a novel is significantly longer than that. It took me over two years to write my first unpublished novel, you know, without starting to uh, to revise it. Um, but you know, there's there's nothing like doing it to show you that you can do it. Sure. I think. So once I did it once, I'm like, I can do this. And you know, like I, I, uh, you know, I worked in a bookstore. I knew <laughs> I knew the realities of of what a, a lot of books by first time authors sold. Like I, you know, I wasn't expecting that I would have you know, uh, book launches like, uh, you know, like the, as are portrayed on Castle or, you know, other, other media, right? Um, but I think knowing Castle, some of the realities yes, of, the, some of the, rea knowing some of the realities of the business, I think helped keep me grounded, you know, allowed me to, allowed me to dream, but, you know, to know the, know the reality of, you know, nothing happens until you finish this. Uh, yeah, you mentioned working in a bookstore and, uh, probably the other thing that with you seeing authors uh, coming in and doing events and, and so on, uh, you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing uh, partly what it did for you was demystify the whole process, not just because you're seeing like the numbers and what books sell and so on, uh, like you say, and some of the business workings behind the, you know, behind the scenes, but you're probably also just meeting authors, right? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, when you meet authors, one thing you realize after a little while, I think, is that I don't know the political way to say it, but like you realize that they're not like as smart as they seem. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> not that yeah, they're no. dumb, but like they're just like it demystifies them a lot. Yeah, and and you know, I, I've sort of long felt that you know, you never learn how to write books or learn how to write stories. You learn how to write this book or you learn how to write this story in the process of doing it. And and as authors came, like you know, people would ask them about their process, and I'm like, oh, I'll try that. And you know what, you know what this you know best-selling author's process wouldn't work for me, and it would be counterproductive. And then somebody else would say something, and I would try that, and that would work. Or or it's like, oh, well, you know, how this person outlines their book before they write 
doesn't work for me. But if I take their outlining procedure and I overlay it to my first draft, that really helps with my plotting and my pacing. But it doesn't help me to do that from the beginning. That's, you know, that's, you know, something that is for them step one is for me, you know, step one or two of my revision process. You know, like I, I, I was able to, to gather, you know, all these sort of tips, you know, kind of organically, you know, and maybe faster than otherwise, <coughs> because, you know, if I was working an evening shift, I would listen, you know, listen in on, on what was happening with the launch, or I would interview authors for the bookstore website. And a lot of times I was asking them questions that I wanted to know, you know, and kind of like getting paid to do it, you know, in the meantime, it was, you know, it was fantastic for, for that, you know, meeting, you know, virtually meeting some of these, some of these authors and, and being able to, to pick their brains because they were writers that I admired personally, as opposed to maybe just whoever came through the store. It was like, um, it, it did, it did demystify it. And, and just seeing how, you know, what works for one person doesn't work for, for everybody or what has worked for me in the past isn't necessarily going to work for me forever. And I it's kind of neat having that toolbox of, hey, this other guy did this and, you know, you haven't tried that in a while. Why don't you try that? That's an interesting yeah. thing to note because I think, I think something that makes a big difference in a writer's life is when the, you realize that there isn't one way to do it. Um, and that's almost good and bad, right? Like, you know, a lot of people, when you talk to them, if they haven't got experience writing or much experience writing, they, they often will have questions like, and behind their questions is the sort of secondary question of, well, how do you, what's the way to do it? You know, like there's some secret uh, or there's some way. And it's, you know, there are, as you say, there's things that you can, that often work. There's things that often are counterproductive. But then there's also like this weird mix of things that, you know, sometimes they work for some people and sometimes they don't. And, and what I've noticed a lot, in, especially when I've been beside a really successful author and somebody's asking them a question, you know what I mean? If you've, you've kind of been in those situations, right? Like when you're beside a sort of success, really successful author and somebody's asking them some question about like, how do I do this? How do I break in? How do I, whatever. And they often will have... A, a non-answer, um, which gets very frustrating for the person who asks. But what you realize like over time is like, there just isn't an answer. Like it all just comes back to the work. Like if the work isn't where it needs to be, there's nothing that they can help you with and there's nothing you can do. And if it is where it needs to be, that doesn't necessarily mean anything will happen, um, but it could. Right. And there's like things you can do to kind of help it along and things you can do to hurt it. But there's that sort of, you know, a lot of it's just sort of happening or not happening, depending on outside factors that you maybe have limited control over. And there's not necessarily advice to give in the same way, you know, like you can't necessarily ask like, you know, Matt Wagner. Well, actually I was listening to somebody ask Matt Wagner, uh, who did the Grendel uh, uh, comics. I'm a, I'm um, a huge fan of his mage Yeah, I, I know you are. I'm just telling people who are listening. <laughs> Matt Wagner is my favorite, uh, and Grendel is my favorite, you know, comic. But um, you know, someone asked Matt Wagner, like, how do you break into comics? He doesn't know. Like, 
uh, it doesn't work the same way. And also like, you have to be able, you have to be good. Well, and you know, the path that worked for Matt Wagner when he came up, you know, in, in the Comico days and <laughs> like that isn't necessarily going to exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which, it's, but what's still true is, you know, great work gets noticed uh, and it's, you know, how it gets noticed, it becomes a bigger question, but like nothing can happen if you're not doing the work, like just nothing can take place. And it's kind of like, becomes a death knell almost if you are just talking about it and not doing it. If you're talking about it and doing it, that's, you know, good. But you don't even need to be talking about it really <laughs> you know as long as you're doing it like at some point the doing of it uh, starts to sort of take over uh for good or ill yeah you know and whether it's whether it's comics or or prose right like the only thing you have control over is you know putting the words on the page or you know putting the art on the page right like you can't control how it'll be received you can't control who's going to choose to publish it. You know, you can, you can certainly try to direct that by, you know, by going to your top choices first, but you know, if they say no, do you quit? You know, like if I write this story and I really want it to, you know, if I really want image to publish my comic and they, they pass on it, do I just bin it and be like, well, that's it for that book. That was going to be. Some people image. do. You know, like I just, I can't, you know, I can't fathom that. Like, almost every short story that I published, unless it was written specifically for an anthology open call, if it got rejected, I turned it around to the next market on my list, you know, within the day or, you know, or the next day. Um, and that, that's just the way it is. You know, like I, I sold one short story that was re rejected over 20 times, but it found, finally found the market that wanted it and that it was right for. I, uh, I, I wrote an article years back about, um, you know, what do you need? I, I was some editor association was doing an anthology and they asked me to contribute something about like, you know, advice for writers. I forget what the details, but, but, I, but, I, but it was like, how, what does it take to get published was sort of what I was writing about. And I said, you know, you, you know, if you want to get published, you need, just need to do these things, write publishable work and send it to an appropriate market. Now that's easier said than done, but you know, that's it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so much of that is even out of your control. Like, you know, yeah. did, somebody, did somebody spill their coffee on the editor, you know, five, you know, five seconds before they were going to read your story, <clears throat> right? Like, like who knows what other little factors go into it, you know, are they having a bad day? Are they having a good day? Did you have a pleasant interaction with them at a convention once? And they recognize your name and it just that, puts them in a, in a mind to be more receptive maybe than they would have to a name they don't know like you can't control any of that but but, but you can control like we say you got these things you can control and you and you can focus on directing them as much as possible you can you know write publishable work is up to you in the sense that you if you're not writing publishable work you can just work to get better right What's publishable depends on a lot of factors that are not kind of outside of your control, but, you know, it, theoretically there's the control factor of you can get better and then sending you to an appropriate market, you know, again, like that maybe they won't take it, 
But if you're sending your work to an inappropriate market, you know, that's, that's a, you shooting yourself in the foot, uh, an appropriate market. Like you can do the research on the market and you can figure out where to send things or just do like trial and error, figure out where to send things. You know, I used to keep a spreadsheet just of like where I was sending stuff and whether they were rejecting it or not. And like, I would just do the same thing that you're talking about. And if I got it back, I would turn it around that same day. And what I would do is track the stats. And I started to figure out like, well, these people accept me 80% of the time. And this person rejects me 100% of the time, you know, maybe I'll start submitting these guys more, you know, mm -hmm. like there's things you can do though, as you say, you can't control at all. Um, but you can certainly like figure out things. You can certainly figure things out uh, if you're paying attention and, you know, as kind of time's going on. Right. But it, and, and funny when you pay attention to that, like sometimes I realize things like, my writing is to a specific editor's taste, and yet most of what they publish is not to my taste as a reader. And it's it's really funny to see that, to see that uh, that dichotomy. Like, That's a great like, point. Not that impossible. When when I when I read a lot of when I you know I read a lot of the work that they publish, I'm like, it's not that I think the stories are bad, right, or don't deserve to be published. I'm just like, oh, you know, that was a fine story, but not to my taste is sort of how, you know, how I, I leave, you know, I, a, a lot of that, a lot of work sometimes. And, it, and it's like, and yet this person seems to really like my work. <laughs> it's like, what's that about? But uh, it's, yeah, you absolutely can, can come across those things. And, and sometimes the, the not getting into a market makes me want to get into that market more. Or, oh yeah, I, I was doing, I have a poem in uh, my book, The National Gallery, and, and the poem is, it's one of the lines in the poem is first I couldn't get published in grain. Then I published in every issue of grain. Uh, here are the heads of former editors I've slain. Uh, so that's the lines, but like what it's based on is I used to submit to grain magazine and they were never, they never published me. Cause again, I was keeping the records. So I knew like they were, they hate, they rejected every single thing that I sent them, but then they got a new editor and she liked my haiku horoscopes. And so for a while, she was running my haiku horoscopes in every issue of Grain. So then I literally went from never publishing in Grain to publishing in every issue of Grain that was coming out for years. You know, it was, you know, as, and that's completely because of a random occurrence, you know, that happened outside of my control. And, you know, this person who took over already knew who I was and had read these things in like uh, Uptown Magazine. It was, you know, Sibley Legree had moved there and taken over. Uh, and so, you know, it was just, you know, you can't, as you say, like, unless you're kind of really doing the work and doing the math or even in a weird way and not taking it personally, but just sort of having a sense of what you're doing. Uh, and yeah, I'm just going to focus on like what I'm doing and what I can control and what kind of matters to me in that sense. Um, so many people will get wrapped up in the external things. And one of the things I've always kind of admired about your approach uh, also, Chadwick, is you were one of the authors that I kind of met early on-ish in my career, and um, and also one of the people at that time that just seemed to have a really clear sense of what they wanted to do, and we were taking appropriate steps to try to do what you wanted to do. And I know it maybe seems like commonsensical or commonplace to you, perhaps, but I'm curious to know a bit about how that attitude developed, because a lot of people have a hard time getting that attitude. Um, it's, it's funny. I, 
when I was first starting out, um, I had uh, I had this framed picture of Nick Cave on the door ah, of my, my that office. Guy. And there's a quote on that picture that said, uh, uh, writer's block is a profound lack of confidence and I've never felt that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing now because that uh, over, over, the, over the years the, that pi the picture ended up getting destroyed and I lost it, which I, I greatly regret. Um, but that was, that was like, I, it was a musician I admired and a lyricist I admired and I had to stare him in the face every morning, or like every time I would go to sit down at my desk and write. And, uh, and I don't know that I necessarily, you know, felt the confidence that, that he had, because why, why would I? I hadn't done anything yet. But as I accumulated victories, whether it was I finished writing a short story and I sent it out into the world, I finished writing a novel, I finished revising that novel, I have submitted that novel for publication. Like it, it was that sort of built that up. Uh, I'm probably less confident now than I was when I started my career, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and that was, I wanted to write fantasy novels. I wanted to write fantasy stories. I wanted to, I wanted to set fantasy fiction in Winnipeg and in the prairies and in Canada, which is not something I was seeing a lot of. Um, I think Tanya Huff is one of the only people that I knew who was doing that at the time. Um, with her her blood books, it became you know the Blood Ties TV show, and and uh, there was a spinoff series I think that was set in Vancouver. And uh, but it was I I didn't see that I didn't I didn't see my home in writing, and uh, and that was that was something that I that I wanted, and that sort of coincided with you know discovering urban fantasy and and realizing that's what I wanted to write. Um, Why did that matter to you to see your home? town or your home well, country it, province whatever represented in, in changes the fiction the you like it, it changes yeah. the story like i could like my my protagonist in thunder road ted is an albertan oil worker well he could have been a texan oil worker and you know there's norse mythology connections in minnesota so he could have it could have been a road trip from texas to minnesota but that that's a different book you know minneapolis is not winnipeg and just because there, you know, there is uh, a Nordic community there, it's not the same as, as, you know, the Icelandic community in Gimli or like looking at a map of Manitoba and seeing, you know, Balder uh, as a town who's one of the, Balder's one of the Norse gods or a rural municipality of Bifrost, like all that stuff. I'm like, why is no one using this? It's right here, um, you know, or it, as simple as, you know, how often is Winnipeg murder capital of Canada? You know, like you don't need to go to New York or Los Angeles or Chicago to, you know, to have grim things happening if that's what you want. And, and it just felt like, you know, it, it felt it felt like, you know, you could get away with setting a book in, you know, in, you know, small city America, but nobody, nobody cared about Canada if it wasn't, you know, Toronto, Montreal or Vancouver. And, and maybe some of that is is my bitterness for watching every band I ever wanted to see, you know, fly over my head, but never actually land at the Winnipeg arena. Um, but I, I wanted that. I wanted those, those epic kind of stories to happen here. You know, if you, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And like, until I knew writers 
from Manitoba, I didn't think it was a realistic vocation. And, and so, you know, the more books that publish in, in, uh, in Winnipeg or Manitoba or, or you know, wherever, you know, you as a particular writer may be from, I think the more breaks down that, that uh, you know, that false idea that readers will only care about a book set in New York. Like, nobody's going to care about my book set in New York. I haven't even visited New York yet, right? Like, it's going to, it's yeah. Like anything I would write set in New York would be like a stupid cliche based on TVs and movies I've seen and, you know, or second or third hand from other people's imaginings. Whereas here I can give you my take. Like nobody is going to have the same view of Winnipeg as I do, even if you've lived here your whole life, right? You know, we're, we will have grown up in different parts of the city or, you know, moved to the city at different times in our lives and that will, that will factor into how we see it and what we choose to portray. Like I still haven't even portrayed, you know, all of the city, you know, <laughs> like in like four books that have, you know, in some way or shape or form take place in Winnipeg. I still have a lot of the city I haven't even used. I so, think people setting novels in New York is like when they write a scene where someone drinks cola. Like it's New York is kind of the equivalent exactly. of cola. Like nobody drinks cola. They drink Coke. They drink Pepsi. You know what I mean? Like, and it just is weird when they write cola because now the reader has to make their own little mental decision about whether it's Coke or Pepsi. And, and I feel like there's a subtle way in which the writer is afraid to write Coke or Pepsi. Cause like, what if they write Coke, but the reader likes Pepsi? Like that's the sort of thinking that you get into. You, you know, when you don't commit on that micro level. And what I find is that it, it leads to this waffleness feeling throughout the manuscript where like, it's always a cola. It's always, they're walking down a street, you know, like the house is uh, tan, you know what I mean? Like it, it all becomes very generic and, you know, New York is almost like, although they'll say New York, like really what they'll end up doing with so often is, not writing about New York at all, but writing about like someone else's depiction of New York in another book who also they didn't visit New York. Uh, so like, I've always appreciated that specificity. Yes, that, that sort of second, third hand setting is exactly what I, what I wanted to avoid for, for specificity. And, you know, yeah, maybe you will. Like, I think I, I, I think I, I, I don't know that it was the only thing that pissed off one reviewer, but they didn't like that my, my protagonist didn't like jazz. And they were like, he <laughs> claimed to have eclectic taste in music when he doesn't like jazz. But no one likes like, jazz. Like, he like listens to country music and rock and punk and metal and, and industrial and blues, but he doesn't like jazz. It's <laughs> like a specific thing that he is, you know, specifies that he doesn't like, right? And and suddenly that becomes a thing. That's and, so funny. Uh, and but it, it 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 was funny in that it was one of those bad reviews that to me was great because I, I read that that review that didn't really enjoy my book and I looked at that and I'm like as a reader I want to read the book that this guy doesn't like because like yeah well, right I'm like everything he everything he took umbrage to I'm like that sounds badass and I guess that's why I put it in there right like so you know like I wrote a thing that I wanted you know and and through my lens and I like and that's how people are like they like something and they don't like something and it doesn't necessarily make sense but they feel really strongly about it 
you know so like you can't really have a character without those personality things and, and the idea that so many authors will try to make the location generic because they don't want people imagining trying to have, work too hard to imagine something or they'll make the character you know pleasant because they're afraid the reader might not like them you know like i i always just feel like it's just the wrong you you get into the cart before the horse thinking you know it's like well i want this to be marketable in new york agents so therefore i'll set it in new york well in reality only canadians care whether or not a novel is set in canada and only canadians are upset if it's no, if it is set in canada <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. well you know i think i i think i've heard i think i've heard you say this uh before but it's like you can't be someone's favorite artist unless you're somebody's least favorite yeah i like to say that a lot and uh but you know it, it's it's also <laughs> true as you probably know working in the book business uh, you know there's an idea in canada that canadian locations are not marketable in the u.s you americans don't share that idea which is such a bizarre thing you know americans are completely you know non plussed doesn't bother them whatsoever uh, to have a book set in the U.S., whereas I've seen Canadian publishers getting Canadian grant money to publish Canadian novels, request people change their manuscript and set it in the U.S. Yeah, and I, I don't know how much of that is sort of like, you know, there, there's definitely like an infiltration of U.S. culture in Canada, right? But sure, I don't know how much of it is is that, and they just feel that that is a more universal experience, but, but there's yeah, no, it's just, it's a, yeah, yeah, no, but I agree with you. And, and I think the other, but just to go back to something you said earlier along these lines, though, as you say, if you look at the map, you know, you see Balder, you see Bifrost and you're like, you know, why didn't anybody ever do this before? Why do you think nobody ever did it before? Well, I mean, there I won't say before I started publishing that there was no fantasy or science fiction writers from from Manitoba because obviously there were. Um, I mean, even you know, like Guy Gabriel K has has ties to uh, strong ties to Manitoba, um, but uh, most of the people who published in the field and saw success left. Right, like you know, Guy sure. K doesn't live here. Stephen Erickson doesn't live here anymore. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you've read David Keck in the past. He lives in New York now, uh, but that, that was sort of what I was seeing. You know, there was there was short story writers from Winnipeg or from Manitoba who show, who sold stories, but I I wasn't I was seeing it as a background. It was like you know, this author grew up in Brandon, Manitoba. They live in Toronto, right? Like that that was always what I saw. If if Manitoba was mentioned at all. Manitoban authors were writing poetry or literary fiction as far as I could, you know, easily see. And obviously there, you know, there's outliers and, and, and differences and, and, you know, you never get a hundred percent of the scene, but most of what I was seeing was, was literary fiction. And, and so you're, you're not going to be looking for mythological ties, I guess, in the same way, like, you know, I think people mm. draw on folklore and, and literary fiction all the time, um, but I was I was actively looking for ways to build a fantasy world in Manitoba, and so I saw. Sure. Whereas, like I I was primed for those connections. 
And I suppose yeah. urban fantasy as a genre enables that in a way that, you know, like epic fantasy doesn't, you know, where you have these historical settings, perhaps, yeah. or non-world settings. Uh, even my first, uh, you know, my first, ep you know, like sword and sorcery book, um, <laughs> drawing on Winnipeg, like the, mm. you know, the, the castle of the royalty, I'd modeled it after the, the Hotel Fort Gary. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just moved it to where Union Station was. And then there was like this broad, you know, approach to the mm. castle, you know, this broad tree-lined approach to the castle with old buildings lining it, you know, and that was sort of like, you know, the old part of the city. And, 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 and I was still looking at, you know, what I could transport from Winnipeg into that styling of fiction, but uh, it just worked better. Um, but yeah, I definitely think I was, I was just, I was looking for connections. You know, if, if I'm writing about Norse mythology, of course, there's going to be giants. Well, we have more Sasquatch sightings in Manitoba than anywhere else in Canada except BC. So, you know, there's an explanation for some of the stuff there, you know, Manipogo mm. in Lake Manitoba. Well, okay, now, now I've got a lake serpent. Is it a dragon? Is it, you know, the Midgard serpent? What, you know, if I'm writing in this Norse mythology lands, which is it? You know, Flin Flon is this mining town. Where else would dwarves be? You know, like... All those, all those connections came organically, but they came because I was looking for them and, and primed for where I could, you know, overlay this mythological paradigm into my home. Oh, that's excellent. Well, speaking of your home, Chadwick, where can, is your home on the internet? Where can people find you to learn more about Thunder Road and your new book and uh, just your other work? You can you can find me at chadwickginther.com. Uh, I'm pretty much always on Twitter at chadwickginther, C H A D W I C K G I N T H E R. Um, that's where I will most most often uh, interact with folks. Uh, there is a there is an author uh, page for me on Facebook, but uh, that seems you know I, I tend to update that less frequently than I'm on uh, on Twitter or or even. Uh, uh, it's it's mostly the you know the same stuff I post on my on my home blog anyway, um, but yeah that's where uh, that's where you can find out more about the books the series I've got excerpts of most of my novels and and stories up on my website if you want to want to give one of them a try. So. And again, Chavik's new book, which is a uh, short fiction set in the Thunder Road universe, is When the Sky Comes Looking for You. And uh, he's launching it at McNally Robinson uh, on October the 19th. So if it's before that, you can go. Uh, and even if you're not in Winnipeg, uh, you can check out that launch. On you know, It'll be both online and in person uh, on McNally Robinson's uh, YouTube channel or live in their bookstore. Uh, and if it's after October 19th here, um, you know, that will be archived, I'm sure, on the McNally Robinson page as well. And like, you know, Chavik says, he's got his own website with uh, all that stuff. And of course, you know, the book will be everywhere. You can find books. When the sky comes looking for you. Uh, thanks again for talking to me, Chavik. And uh, any parting me. words of wisdom about how to incorporate North mythology into one's life? <laughs> uh, okay. I don't know that it's, you know, maybe necessarily the best idea given, you know, a lot of the political <laughs> climate to incorporate a lot of Norse mythology into your life right now, but circling back to that, that fatalistic, uh, you know, attitude in the myth, in the myths, just because you, you think you don't have a good chance of becoming a, a New York Times bestseller, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to finish that story. Write it and submit it.
write it and submit it and then keep writing the wrong way. Yeah, I did. We got it.